The Crash Landed on K-Dramas team is back with a fresh new episode. On today's episode, Poonam and Meenal play host to two very special guests who are joining us to discuss how Koreans have tackled the zombie genre. Our first guest today is Tina, who's famous on Twitter as a capital chick. She is a recovering trial lawyer and a general fangirl geek. She recently finished hosting the Word of the Witness podcast about the time travel drama 12 Monkeys on Sci-Fi and Hulu. Benny, also known on Twitter as the Real Benny Man, he is our repeat guest and is probably going to become a resident with us because of the common love that we share for K-dramas. Benny was a guest on season 1 of our podcast on the episode The Men Have Their Say. Benny also co-hosts a popular cricket podcast at the Last Wicket which you must check out if you are a cricket fan. So today we are going to explore why the drama Kingdom and the movie Train to Busan became such global hits. Before we proceed, I want to give our listeners the disclaimer that there are likely to be spoilers in this episode. So we've tried to provide timestamps where possible as reference for you to skip if you haven't watched the drama or the movie. So Tina and Benny, my first question to both of you is, how did you two end up watching Kingdom and what is it about the Korean industry that makes these movies, drama so attractive to the wider global audience? Well, I'm not really a huge zombie genre fan. I started watching The Walking Dead many, many years ago, and that was my hook into zombies or the walkers as they like to call them. It was an interesting thing because remember growing up when you watched zombie movies, you know, they all stick to the same template. Someone gets bit and then they they die, but then they come back and it's just the same template across countries, across movies and TV shows. I think The Walking Dead was the first time that it was a deeper ex- exploration of how it affects society, how it affects people and how they turn on each other and just that trying to be good in a terrible place. So that was really the only show that I started watching consistently. And then once I got into K-dramas and Korean movies, I remember coming across Train to Busan and I was floored. That is simply the best zombie movie I've seen, period. That made me want to give Kingdom a chance and I didn't regret it at all. The reason I wanted to watch it is the same reason that I watch any K-drama because I want to feel invested in the characters. I want to feel what they feel. I love shows and movies that I can think about, you know, for days after. And Kingdom was one such show. In fact, Tina, I remember you mentioning that Kingdom was the first great drama that you actually watched. Am I right? It's the first Korean television show or movie I ever watched. That's a great entry point. I don't know if you all remember a little TV show called Game of Thrones. And I had read all of the books and watched the show. It was my favorite show. And I think like a lot of people in 2019, it kind of broke my heart in the end. And I forget what TV American TV critic wrote, if Game of Thrones crushed your soul, try Kingdom. And it's interesting because then when I was kind of digging in later, the writer Kim Yoon-hee said it's one of her favorite shows. And so what drew me to it, as you all were saying, I wouldn't say I'm naturally a huge zombie fan. Although when I start to think about it, I'm like, but I love 28 Days Later and I liked the early seasons of The Walking Dead. What I like about 
zombie stories is it breaks down the rules, it breaks down class divisions, and it examines human nature under stress and the choices you make. Agree. I don't think I probably would have watched it if it wasn't a period piece, though. It just became this perfect Venn diagram. For example, I haven't picked up Sweet Home or some of the other zombie dramas that are set in contemporary times. What drew me in was the period piece and exploring the history of another country and the political allegory. And there's other shows that are not zombie shows, but whether it's like The Expanse that's in space or The Hundred, which is in the future, all of these, what happens when the rules change and the choices people make. And Kingdom, even though it's set 500 years ago, explores similar themes. So that's what drew me to it. And then it became, at least in the US during the pandemic, what the show that on the sidelines of soccer games, everybody was talking about. So I guess it's a Netflix effect. It is. Kingdom season one has been there for a while, but it picked up speed in season two, especially when the pandemic was in there. And secondly, Kingdom is a deceptively a zombie movie, actually. But uh, I had started reading Walking Dead comics and then started watching Walking Dead. And uh, I think I dropped out at five seasons. This five season is typically my limit. After fifth season, I feel like, you know, they have pretty much shown everything that was meant to. I'm done with zombies. I really don't need to watch it in K-dramas again. But I watched Train to Busan before I watched Kingdom. And Train to Busan, there are two themes. One is what Benny said. Zombie is pretty simple template that you get infected and you kill. Eventually, at the end of it, everybody dies or it becomes a zombie. That's one theme. And the second thing is, they typically try to show a post-apocalyptic world where there is only one or two person remaining among a swarm of zombies and you do that. But Kingdom, none of these things are focused. It is about survival from zombies, sure. But it is at heart a political thriller. It's a, And moreover, the way it's designed, it's not one-dimensional. They always have a fighting chance and they get into another situation where they have to fight it all over again. And I found that very interesting, which doesn't happen in movies so much. For me, it was absolutely new to see that. Having said that, season two, I found very soul-crushing because it was so sad and it felt like they would never win. But I loved the season one because it gave me hope. So I felt that season one takes you to a high and you're feeling very optimistic. But when I was re-watching it for this episode recording, my soul was actually crushed at the end of it because I realized how badly the ending messed up my mind. I could actually draw parallels to what happened in India and UK uh, in the pandemic where both countries relaxed thinking we've seen through the first wave, there wasn't much damage, let's open up and try to get back to normalcy. Some kind of complacency set in. And then as the second wave owing to the new variant started building up exponentially, it was too late by the time everybody realized the enormity of the crisis. And even in Kingdom, they brought this out very well. They realized at the end that the real cause of the zombie plague is different to what they had thought. And you know what that means? We are back to square one. We are starting from scratch on the blackboard. And to me, that was extremely disheartening to watch. Yeah, even they learn about zombies by experience, right? Uh, they, they were like, why are they alive in the day? And that's exactly what happened with CDC and US during pandemic. Like we, every time we thought dif- there was a different cause. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting. The, the show that I thought the most of, and this might sound a little bit strange as I was watching Kingdom, 
was HBO's Chernobyl. And I don't know if, if any of you watched that. Oh, wow. I love that show. And my God, I've gone into a vicious circle with that show and the podcast and re-watching it. But I love everything about it. Yeah, but, you know, it's not quite Frankenstein's story, but humans using science. Yeah. Something goes wrong. You have scientists and some well-meaning people in government trying to save people. And then you have sort of an exploration of how institutions, politics can get in the way of the common good. And I was left with the same feeling at the end of Chernobyl. And and in the United States, we watched Chernobyl and you're like, oh, well, I guess that happened because it was the Soviet Union. And then we ended up in a pandemic watching our government totally mismanage the crisis. So those themes, you know, I know that sounds like a weird comparison, but that exploring human nature and political crises and science and not listening to the scientists when you have lives on the line. I was thinking about Chernobyl a lot as I was watching Kingdom. But it is a right parallel to bring in because in Kingdom as well, it was unleashed by Koreans itself into Korea. It didn't come from outside. The Kingdom is probably inspired from Rampant, another Korean movie which is set in uh, Josian era. There, they show that infusion was because some German invader or some German guy came brought in. But here, they knowingly planted it for their own reasons. Each person from uh, from Ashina, from those uh, the the king's advisor, Lord Cho, and also who was the other third person who also did that? Oh, the queen. I mean, she was really evil, wasn't she? I mean, we will get to the characters eventually uh, in the episode. But to me, she was a really terrifying person. She was so creepy. She is the Circe of this show. Yep. shots <laughs> where they zoom in around or they kind of show it to her in her palace and, uh, and there is an expression. I thought that they were very, very riveting as well as scary. And I've noticed this in K-dramas and even Korean movies to an extent. In every show or every movie, they have these scenes where characters just stare at each other. And it just like goes back and forth, back and forth. No dialogue, just music. And sometimes you have to wonder why do they spend so much time drawing this out? Like it's just getting awkward now. But in Kingdom, that works so well, especially Laura Cho Ju or the Queen Cho. Those stares, amazing. <laughs> it's very, very intense. And the smile. It's nightmare fuel when the camera comes up and she just smiles totally. One moment she's so serious and then she shows uh, she's so vulnerable in front of her dad and suddenly realize what she's done to him. There are people who are pure evil. There is no empathy. There is no remorse. There's no chance that that character is going to get any kind of redemption. And even if uh, they try to redeem the character, the viewer is not going to accept that redemption. So what I liked about Kingdom actually is that they kept some characters purely evil with no justification why they were like that. And I thought that was powerful writing to not have the viewer feel empathy for these characters. Yeah, it's funny. I feel like if I was watching this show 10 years ago, I would have wanted there to be more layers and more dimensions in 2021. After living in the uh, in the United States for the last you know five years, I'm like, no, they're really that's that is realistic. 
<laughs> so there was this one TV critic, uh, Matt Zoller Seitz, who's really smart. And he wrote, if people listening haven't read it, a wonderful review of Kingdom for the website Vulture. And he called it the nightmare of now. And I thought that that was just, I don't know if that's a tagline you want to use as a selling point to watch the show. <laughs> but when it comes to the political allegory and the way they just show, sometimes it's incompetence, sometimes it's selfishness, sometimes it's just pure power hungry evil at, and getting what you want at any cost. And it shows the whole spectrum. But what I like about the show and from what I've watched so far of maybe the 13 or 14 Korean dramas I've watched on TV, it's not nihilistic. So you can be realistic. You can show the whole spectrum of human behavior. But it also, you know, we have heroes in this show and people that make very, very hard choices that are not what they personally want, but it is for the common good. Yes. I think that's why I came back to watching this show and loving it so much after perhaps because American shows go on for so long, perhaps because American TV has kind of been in this anti-hero era for now, like 20 years since like The Sopranos, that after The Walking Dead and after The Game of Thrones, once you kind of dwell on the misery for so long, you start to feel like no matter what the heroes do, their choices never matter. And the kingdom, there's not that there isn't a cost. There's a huge, huge cost. But sometimes when people make those hard choices, it does end up being for the common good. And I just really needed to watch that in, in 2020. So I personally avoid horror and zombie movies. One, because I'm a real scary cat in life. And secondly, it's just pure violence and gore. And people are just getting murdered for no reason. But... First two episodes into Kingdom, I realized that the zombies just went into the background because I got more invested in the character arcs and the political power play that was happening around those people. So one of my most favorite relationships is between Lord An Yon and the Crown Prince Lee Chang. Yu Juno, who plays Lord An, uh, is a fantastic actor. And actually, the three of us have spoken about his powerful screen presence, his expressive eyes, everything about him in our earlier episode, Drama vs. Uh, Troopers. So if listeners want to check it out, they can. I want to hear from you all, which were the characters that you loved? And in terms of relationships, which really caught your eye? I think I mentioned to... Uh... To you, Mino. One of the best things about any good show is the supporting cast. Yeah, the leads can do a lot in terms of making a show popular, but for it to be solid, to be consistently good, you need to round it with a good supporting cast. And Kingdom is also one of those K dramas where consistently you have even the people with small roles play such a huge part. For me, my top two characters are, you know, one is Bay Duna. The very definition of her first name, she is so, so good as, you know, the physician assistant who, she, she's not a big hero when, when you look at it. She's not fighting all the zombies and not like an action star in this. You can identify with her because if I was in the zombie universe, I'm not going to pick up a sword and I would probably be like Chobom Paul, the very cowardly magistrate. I'm probably more like that. <laughs> So I would be behind someone like Veiduna and, you know, getting her protection. She is my favorite character in the whole show just because she is so human in this crazy zombie universe. 
And she's still able to find the goodness and stick to her principles. Uh, my second favorite character was Yang Shen, played by the actor Kim Sung Kyu, mysterious tiger hunter. He's just like runs like crazy. He can fight. He can do this. And he protects. It's almost like the template of uh, you know a typical action star. And I just liked him for just that simple reason. And he was so critical to whatever the prince wanted to do to, to save his people. And again, without going into spoilers, he becomes such a huge part of the prince's plan in the second season for a good reason. So yeah, these two, for different reasons, are my favorite characters because they elevated the show from good to really great. The Yongshin character actually has a very uh, sweet, I, I should not say sweet for that, but it has a good redemption arc. He is the one who introduces that into the doctor's place uh, because he thought that he had to do whatever is necessary to keep people alive. But what he does after, and despite knowing that Hojuno's character, where they had misused his villages, right, his own family, they had misused them in the war, and he had all the reason to go against humanity, do whatever he wanted, but he didn't. He chose to be on the good side. And like you said, he was critical to Prince's plan to save his people. And in Ashin of the North, Ashin is also going through the same travesty her fate has been, but yeah. she's lonely and probably not as well just as a Yongshin. Yeah. But she is like, my revenge is bigger than the humankind. Go humankind, I will burn you down. <laughs> but this is the difference, Poonam. He had Beduna, the physician, by his side throughout. She was on the right side. She was fighting for the good. When you have that kind of an example in front of you, it helps you take the right path. Something which Ashin in Ashin of the North lacked. That is, there is some truth in that. But having said that, it is also how our DNA is wired or how we are wired. I mean, there were so many other instances for him to quit or just save himself or go over. But he was there. And in fact, there are so many moments he assures the king or there is one time, uh, not the king, the prince, there is one time prince has lost it and he's like, oh my God, I have caused this. And he's like, no, it's okay. You need to get up now. You need to do this. He didn't have to, but he did it. Beduna is one of my most favorite characters and I think Benny has already said enough, but also has my heart. Yeah. Do you know, I actually have a different favorite character, but just to follow up on Beduna's character, what I like about her after watching many apocalyptic genre shows, I love seeing women be portrayed as physically strong and formidable on screen. However, I personally, like you, Betty, I'm not going to be the one <laughs> like the tiger hunter wielding the sword. She is brave. She is a woman of science. She is using her intelligence to unravel this, what comes down to a scientific problem. All of those skills and attributes are very relatable and are possible in the real world. I love seeing women portrayed on screen. I mean, I love Ashen. I love watching her, especially <laughs> after watching my love from the star. I love, I love, I love watching her take out 10 people and shooting arrows. It's badass. But just like men are portrayed uh, different ways, I want to see different kinds of women being leaders or heroes or strong. And we have a woman writer, so I don't think it's a coincidence that we see a lot of different kinds of female strength. And for her, it's that she just musters the courage under stress. 
to, especially in the season two finale in many ways. And she's using her mind. But my favorite character, even though it's kind of basic, is the crown prince. As I was watching it, I think if I'm pitching this show to friends here in the U.S., And they're like, I don't know about zombies. And I'm like, well, it's actually more like if you took a bunch of Shakespearean plays and mashed them up. And the crown prince is like the Prince Hal who becomes the Henry V character. It's not that he's like a bad guy at the beginning, but he's a crown prince that was raised in privilege. He's complaining about the food on the road. He's cracking jokes about murdering his loyal. He's he's focused on his own political aspirations, sometimes to dire consequences for others. And he goes on a really, I find, personally satisfying, even if it's even if I don't necessarily get what I thought I wanted. I find his character arc a really satisfying leadership journey of watching a leader be formed in this crucible and make the choices for the common good. And Again, as like I said before, uh, it's been 20 years of anti-heroes on my TV screen here in the U.S. And so watching someone struggle with making these decisions and choose the common good over their self-interest is something that I kind of haven't seen in a while. I, I feel like he's Prince Hal dropped in the middle of like Macbeth and Hamlet mashed up together. So he ended up being and he's a wonderful actor. There's a scene at the end of season two that I was in tears watching just from his face on the screen. No, he did really well. And he has had to go through, show his pain, anger, agony, leadership. Uh, Frankly speaking, he he did a great job on that. You all have covered my favorite characters. And like Tina said, uh, the crown prince is also my favorite character. To me, the turning point for him was when they are taking the carts to Beduna's village and the last cart gets stuck, which has the old people in it. So the other uh, folks tell him to run and he says, I will not leave my people behind. I will not be that king who abandons his subjects. Because earlier you had seen that the noblemen had abandoned the poor villagers by not taking them on the ship and just leaving them to die. To me, that was a key moment where he transformed and he realized what his responsibilities were as a leader. And then throughout, you see, in the following episodes, he never, ever lets his people down. I think that was a great sign of uh, leadership that came about in The Crown Prince. Which is the anti-hero or villain that most caught your admiration? <laughs> I don't know, admiration is the right word when you're saying villains. But is it Ashin? Is it uh, the second queen consort or Lord show? Who would be your pick? A good villain for me is one that makes me want to hate them almost makes me want to jump into the screen. I'm like, let me at him, let me at him, you know? <laughs> that kind, I would say Lord Chohag too. First of all, his eyes. He's so intense. And again, like some of the best Korean actors out there, you know, mid- minimum dialogue, he can convey that menace and the threat. And he is so good. And that makes it all the more impressive when his daughter gets one over him. In terms of just conveying menace and danger, like he, he was the most impressive but anti-hero, I, I always go with Ashen just because, yes, she had to make the choices that she made because of what she had to go through and all the horrible losses as a child. When someone can convey both the good and the bad in equal measure and leave you conflicted, whether to root for them or to be afraid of them, I think they have done their job. Yeah, she is badass. She not only invokes 
zombies, but he's there shooting one by one in case you escape in there. And then she's like, I kill all of Josian and all of them. But she ends up being the reason everyone is getting infected, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think mine remains the queen consort. Just because when she does that to her father, I'm like, yeah, girl. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, you, I mean, the way she played it, and, you know, what you were saying, Betty, that it's, I relished cheering against her. She was just so formidable and terrifying that, I mean, she's just, she was a fantastic villain. No regrets. She was enjoying it, yeah. right? She was with a smile on her face. <laughs> And the way also they stage it, there's something so insidious and subversive about having a woman holding a baby, right? In the most maternal of poses and yet unleashing death on everyone that it was so subversive. I just, the feminist in me just ate it up. I loved it. So it reminded me about this uh, great Indian mythological epic, Mahabharata, which was retold by Dev Dutta Patnaik in his book, Jaya. He made a point that there are three factors that drive the human race. And you can take it and look at it in any story and in any political context. And those are sex, power and greed. And I think the queen was the epitome of all these qualities culminating into one person and taking it to a whole new uh, evil level. She was pure evil. I don't get scared of zombies, but her smile has kept me awake for nights. That's how terrifying she was. What was impressive is she's so young. She's such a young actress. So to bring out that kind of performance to screen and to capture the screen with her eyes and her evil smile was just brilliant. I was very, very impressed uh, with her performance. But there are moments, especially when you rewatch it, where her brother is telling her, hurry up and get better so you can get pregnant again. And she's like, my husband's over 50. That as a woman watching it, I mean, I just thought that the way a woman writer constructed that character and how she ends up to where she is, is so rooted in the, the only value that men placed on her. Exactly. And she decides yeah. in her own way that I'm going to prove to y'all what I'm made of since y'all have underestimated me so much in, in my entire life. She really had no remorse. She was a very powerful character. Yeah, it's funny because the queen consort, the writer said she was inspired by Game of Thrones. The parallel between her and Cersei are they both have these very calculating fathers that really view their worth only in terms of like reproduction, right? And so she is in a different way, a monster created by that patriarchy that father figure that's your only value to me as a woman is producing an heir and then get out of the way that's your only part to play and so she takes that and twists it to her advantage i'm not saying she doesn't take responsibility for the choices she makes right but even if she's making decisions that are the moment that she's like see father i didn't give it up i understand what created the monster so I found that parallel, you know, because when she like smiles at the screen, I'm like, man, you scare heck out of me. 
in a way. And I love when women can be the antagonists. Like, you know, I love that. I love that as much as I love Beiduna being a hero I can relate to. I love when the crown prince is standing in the throne room across from her and she is the formidable antagonist. I want, I want both of those. I'm just glad that the last visual of her was not her just getting swarmed by all the zombies, but of her in those last minutes, like running full tilt, whether as a human or as a zombie. I'm like, that was intense. It was so good. I mean, I just, the first time we were just, and then I rewatched it and I was just cackling. It was so good. Yeah. (laughs) So drawing parallels here, because I just watched Train to Busan recently. Even there, Gong Yu's character is shown to be so self-centered and his character then goes through a journey, his own journey of growth, where he learns uh, from seeing the selfless acts of other passengers, his own little daughter, who remind him that one needs to think of others and protect them before thinking of saving themselves. The Koreans are focusing on great character arcs. There are a lot of poignant dialogues uh, which stay with you. The characters that stay with you. I mean, even in Train to Busan, there's a pregnant lady. She's almost like eight months pregnant. How spunky she was. She was like, no, I'm going to run. I'm going to get the girl and I'm going to save her life. So going back to the writing again, how do you think they are differentiating versus the other shows that you all have watched? I think for me, it's reinvigorated my love for many different genres. I haven't watched a serial killer show in the United States in years because it dwells in misery. And all of a sudden, Flower of Evil was my favorite show. And I'm watching a zombie show. I'm watching Stranger, which is a criminal procedure. These are all shows that I've given up on in Western media because they're just not either focused on character or they just are, I love the term misery porn. They dwell in the misery. That's what The Walking Dead became. The Walking Dead became dwelling in human misery. And I think a saturation of that, a lot of Western shows combined with what was going on in the world with a pandemic or politically in some countries, I need a measure of hope in the stories I'm consuming. And even though Train to Busan and Kingdom, there's great cost and the people I'm cheering for, rooting for, their, where their story ends up isn't necessarily what I wanted for them, but their sacrifice matters and there's hope. It's clear-eyed, right? We end Kingdom with some significant challenges on the horizon, but there's hope in the stories. It's funny because I I would tell people, no, Kingdom's not that, it's not that gory. It's different than The Walking Dead and Negan and all of the misery that it got into. And then I rewatched it and I'm like, but somebody does pull a tongue out with their teeth. (laughs) But but for some reason, I find it just far less nihilistic, even if it's, I think, still being very clear-eyed about human nature. I'm going to echo Tina there because hope is such a big thing, especially now. It's so hard. I mean, as someone who's been a regular viewer of The Walking Dead, it's very easy to draw the the contrasts between a show like The Kingdom and The Walking Dead. I have very different feelings and emotions when I'm done watching with each show because with Walking Dead, it's about, yeah, that checks out. Yeah, the world is a depressing place. And then you watch Kingdom, you feel hopeful. You feel inspired that they're... As bad as things get, there are always good people trying to do the right thing. And that's such an understated 
message that we need to hear and see. And honestly, with K-dramas, the writing is always top-notch. And I think I mentioned this on, on you know during the last recording as well, that they can take a ridiculous story and concept, but they can write it so well that you're like, yeah, that that totally makes sense. And again, it, it comes back to making you feel invested in the characters and where they end up. In Kingdom, when some of the characters die, it's you know it's going to happen, and you're like, please don't do that, please don't. And you know, especially in the second season, in, I think in the third or fourth episode, where a major character from the first season is killed off, and you know it's kind of heading towards that because of the arc is written. When it happens, and and especially the way they do it, there's a, a, a slight redemption to it too. You feel so invested in it, and all of that is a combination of good acting and good writing. It's easy for anyone to say, okay, I'm going to write a zombie show, and there's good people, bad people, zombies, so-and-so. But the dialogues and the way the actors portray it, like it all has to be this perfect combination, and it works so well in Kingdom as it does in um, many other shows, but especially in a zombie show, you need it to work because already you're coming with this concept that obviously I'm going to say it's unrealistic. I don't think we'll ever be attacked by zombies in the real world, but you have to sell it. You have to make it believable and you have to feel it. So, you know, the writing is just a combination of making you feel invested in the characters, but also telling you like, hey, look, there is hope, like however bad things get. There are good people who try to do the right thing and we'll be okay. And that's such a nice message. And also realistic. I, yeah. I think we, wherever we are living, we have definitely seen in the last two years people making not smart or selfish choices, but also people who have sacrificed so much for others in the last two years, whether it's doctors, healthcare workers, you name it. So a show like where the walking dead ended up or game of Thrones ended up where you just, at least I personally felt, well, God, maybe nothing matters. You can definitely have days that it feels like that. I don't think it's unrealistic to show that sometimes there are people out there that will self-sacrifice and try and do the right thing. Cause I, I see that in the real world as well, but I don't think it's just like a Pollyanna wish of, of, I just want a happy ending. Although sometimes happy endings are nice, but I think it's realistic as well. And it challenges you to think like, who are you? What are the kinds of choices you're making? So I first watched Kingdom earlier this year in April, where we were one year into the pandemic. And I started finding a lot of parallels to what was being shown in the drama, which was released in 2019, versus what was happening in reality in pandemic in different countries. For me, what stood out the most was the mismanagement by the people in charge, where political agendas started to take priority over managing people's life. Which such similar aspects uh, stood out for you? For me, I mean, there's a, there was a moment where my husband and I were watching in season two. And to your point, it's two, two men in a field in the 1600s in Korea. And one of them turns to the other and they're like, this country's a mess. And we just had to pause it and like <laughs> pour another drink because we were just like, uh, yeah, <laughs> like that's my meme that I'm for, for this year. 
for me, some of the scenes that really stuck out that made me think of our present circumstances. One was when they were in season one deciding what to do with the bodies and not listening to the science that they knew at the time and common sense and falling back on class divisions, non-science-based reasons for doing things. And it causes a bigger problem um, and a bigger outbreak. That and, and the moment on the pier when the nobility gets on the boat and everybody else is left behind on the dock. Those were such, both of those see such powerful allegory, whether it's the pandemic we're living in now or just about class divisions and government and the common good that just will live in my head rent-free, unfortunately. Those are mine. I had the same feeling when I watched uh, Ashton of the North. There is an opening scene where a woman is going and buying meat from a butcher and her servant is trying to carry it and it's heavy. So he goes on to help it. And she's like, How, why did you touch it? And she takes that meat and throws it away because he has touched it. And the entire landscape is desolate where all of these transactions are taking place. When they move about, you can just see class differences, the way they walk about and the way the man is bound. And I've been reading so much about South Korea and etc. I actually think my friend feels like nothing has changed. This is meant to be 17th century. And now, only thing is, this is modern day class division where if you have connections, if you have money, you're a chairbol, if you are a power, you basically get everything done, what you need. I felt that it's still happening, whatever they showed in Kingdom. That hasn't completely gone away, just the time has changed. Allegory of who gets on the boat and who's left on the dock. If you think about even who has the luxury and the type of job that they can stay home during a pandemic versus who has to go out and work for society to function, that cuts across crisis and the way that it can throw those class divisions into relief. This show explores it in a really powerful way. Yeah, absolutely. So if you consider on similar lines, the migrant crisis that happened during the first wave in India, nobody thought about how these daily wage workers would be impacted. How could they be provided for when there was no work under the lockdown? How could they travel back to their villages? The people who were in the bottom rung of the society were actually hit very hard and didn't have anyone looking after them. So yeah, it's pretty much similar to the situation in the series where the little girl asks, uh, are we also getting a boat? And no one really knows what answer to give her because there is none in sight. Actually, drawing a parallel to The Walking Dead, I think Walking Dead also had this class division shown in that. I do remember some of the initial episodes where there were black and white supremacists. They are together in a camp and the white guy is beating up the black guy and people are like, you know what? Everything is gone down the drain. This is survival. This is different. You forget what you are. But one difference between Korean dramas and Western writing is also that uh, I remember in those few episodes, uh, first season at the least, <laughs> the world is, you know, crazy and you're being attacked by zombies. You're living uh, moment by moment. And yet some of the characters find time to have sex. <laughs> That's one thing you don't see happening in K-drama. <laughs> Although... And I will, uh, these days, Benny, I will take those two characters staring at each other with sexual tension <laughs> over <laughs> why the music swells. But, but what I, 
my some of my favorite moments when I rewatch the show are the moments when people are just sitting around a fire talking. Whether it's The Walking Dead or whether it's Kingdom or you think of uh, The Hundred, which became like an exhausting post-apocalyptic drama. Even in wartime, we're still human beings and people sit down and have a drink or share food and talk. And even in sometimes the worst of circumstances, there's fine dark humor in it because we're human beings. So anytime a show just goes on and on and on in a relentless pace, it doesn't make the time for that. I don't, actually don't enjoy it as much. And, and I also don't think it's like as realistic a depiction of human, like even humans in a crisis find time to, to relate to one another just because we're human beings. And I would love to see, I think we're getting a season three, right? I would love to see even more of that. But those moments, whether it's in The Walking Dead and it's Glenn, the pizza delivery guy, sitting down with the sheriff, having a conversation that they wouldn't probably have taken the time to have in normal circumstances. It's the crown prince, his right-hand man, and the physician's assistant having the unlikely fireside chat that because the rules have been broken down that they can all sit around a fire together. When I rewatch a show, th th those are some of my favorite moments. So I came across one article that spoke heavily about the cinematography and kingdom and how beautiful and stunning it was. Do any scenes stand out for you? I'm such a huge fan of visuals in Korean shows and movies. I don't know how they do it. They're so, so good. Like, I'm such a huge fan of these passages in movies or shows like a movie or a show can be terrible but there can be scenes in it which stick with you and every korean drama or, or movie like however good or bad they are they're always there's some good scenes in them and kingdom is so good and i have like so many to choose from one of my favorite is right in the first season. I, I don't know if it was the second or third episode where in, in that doctor's village, Beiduna's character and Tiger Hunter, they're in this barn having the disagreement. And there is this nurse or physician assistant who's tending to all of the other people there. And then when they attack her, there's this scene towards, I think, the end of the episode where you can see her essentially being swarmed by these people. And they fix on that for about five, ten seconds. And she's not fighting back. She's like, you know, essentially done. And you can just see piles and piles of people. It's almost like a hill, a mini hill. And it's so haunting. It's just a good example of how they can use a simple scene like that to convey the horror, the almost helplessness. And most other movies or shows would have gone for the overkill. But here it was just done very simple. And just with that one scene where she was swarmed by all those people, it's just like you can't do anything. You just have to give up and give in. That was one of my favorite scenes. But I'm also like talking about hopefulness and just this feeling of like good guys finally fighting back. I think in the second season, I think it was a penultimate uh, episode where the prince and his team they come back to Hanyang and the check-in post, like where the security or guards are checking and one person hands something and it's like the prince's seal and he looks up and is a prince and then they show all the people behind the prince fanning out. And I'm like, that is like proper chills because like the good guys are here to save the day. And again, like Hollywood tries to do this, Bollywood tries to do this. Some get it right, but this is 
so well done like the the heroism and like here's someone who's going to come and save the day so for me those two scenes are probably my my favorite and and there are many more even when the prince uh, this is going to go into spoiler territory but i can't help it so when the prince is trapped in this place with the king and he's trying to save himself and then for a flash he sees the human version of his dad coming towards him that was so touching because again, that's the difference between a normal or a good zombie film or show versus a great one. Because they took a moment to show, hey, I know we're talking about zombies here, but these are actually human beings. These are dads, husbands, wives, children. And so in that flash, even as he was trying to protect himself, he could visualize his dad in human form. So... That moment is heartbreaking, Benny, because that moment when his father dies, he loses two father figures at the same time. It's unforgettable. Outside, Ho Jun Hyu is getting killed, and who is his father figure all his life, and his actual father, he had to kill. So that moment is unforgettable and totally etched. That bereavement, that one moment of desolation that you lost all that mattered to you. And again, he expresses it so well, right? He hardly has any dialogues during those scenes. Ju Ji-hoon's face has been so expressive throughout this drama that after season one, I really have become a big fan of his. You guys have covered so many wonderful moments, but the last two episodes of season two are just really a remarkable feat of television making because if you think about it, you really sit back and you and thinking about the production challenge of the genres that it mashes up. So it's a historic epic and they're filming in a, I assume, I hope a set that is a palace and also all of the makeup and extras that goes with the right with zombies and the level that execution of mashing up those two genres, I can really only think of for like Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings that's mashing up monsters in that way with people in armor and fighting and swords. But in both of those, they can kind of make up the world, right? It's fantasy, which of course has roots in real history. But here you're like, what would an actual, what would people actually be wearing in the 1600s in Korea? So just thinking about the costume design the production, the set design, the makeup and special effects on top of the acting. and the, It is just, when it comes to like executing really high quality television, I just think it's a feat. And I'm like, win all the awards. Like every, everyone <laughs> from, from everyone. Because, you know, when you think about all of the different artists that, that came together to make that happen, it's just... Well, I will get into spoilers, but the one scene for me that I felt like was a character arc and the stakes all coming together that you alluded to before is when the crown prince faces Beijuna at the end and is walking by all of the portraits of the kings. Really brings home what's coming to an end. What is he giving up? What was he always raised to expect and to want? And the final place he comes to is his place in the line. And that's where he has to make the decision. And that was just, that's a moment where the set design and character 
come together to make, of course, with the acting, but a really unforgettable like culmination of a character arc that if the show ended there would have been a really satisfying, it's not the right word, but a wonderful character arc. Yeah. Uh, speaking of execution, very quickly, uh, plot twists. They're done so well in this show. And, and again, as someone who has watched TV shows and films for decades now, I, I feel there are times where I can see a twist coming like from miles away. But in this show, there were two genuine twists that I was not ready for. Again, spoiler alert. In the first season, the last episode, one was when it was revealed that the queen was not pregnant. I knew that. I did not see that coming. <laughs> I knew that. Okay, full credit to you, but I did not see that coming at all. Again, it was done so well, the reveal as her maids are helping her. and But at the same time, when it was revealed, I was like, actually, yeah, it, it now it makes sense, you know, looking back. Nothing in K-drama is a waste. So I was thinking, why the wizard village? Why the pregnant woman? So I kind of guessed that. So I didn't guess that she would be the one. What I thought was that it was all part of Lord Cho's bigger plan. And right, she right. was just colluding with him. But her getting one up on her father was a big shock to me. Uh, I, I didn't expect that. Ah, that that uh, even I did not think. I thought my father daughter were in cahoots. Even I didn't think that. <laughs> it's so hard to shock people, right? Because we're we're living in the golden age of television, so people are very well versed with all the tricks that you know TV shows try to pull. And you can still do a twist, which might seem obvious at the end of it, but the lead up to it that has to be good. Which leads me to probably my favorite plot twist of you know the entire show is how they change the rules of the game at the end, like in the end, uh, the dying minutes of the first season, where you know for the entire season we know that okay the, the zombies come alive you know when the sun sets, and when they change it they flip it and then they give a really good explanation for it in the following season. I was like this this is really good this is great. <laughs> the scene you mentioned, trust me when. I was re-watching it. It gave me goosebumps. And this, even though I knew what was coming, I know what's in sex season two. I know what's in Ashin of the North. Because this is what is happening to us in the pandemic. At every stage, when we think we have it under control, a new variant crops up. So imagine what the doctors and scientists are going through at this point. I mean, we've got this under control. Now we can go back to normalcy and boom, something new turns up. So it gave me a lot of chills, um, that particular scene. And that's one of my favorite cinematographic uh, scenes also. Watching the crows fly, implying that something has gone terribly wrong. I think it was a wonderfully short scene. Yeah, I uh, have to make an observation that I found Kingdom thrilling. I mean, a lot has been written about and even Tina, you have talked about all the artists that came together to build zombies, the set design, but you know what? nothing much has been written about the sound design. And I think that was very important because in the zombies, you first hear them, then you see them and only then you react Excellent to them. Excellent point. And that keeps the thrill going so well. After I noticed this and every time I watch, an, watch a new episode or I watch it again, I notice that how well awesome the sound design and the fact that we don't even notice it, that makes it genius. Yeah, yeah. Even how the zombies... One thing you'd ask is, how does it differ the same from other zombie genres? How formidable the zombies are is directly tied to the tension and then the different ways that you can build it, right? In The Walking Dead, 
they're like slow, they're not sentient. And so it's really only when they come together in mass. And so then you can build this kind of dread in a different way. World War Z, I watched the trailer and I was like, there's no way I'm watching anything where the zombies move that fast. <laughs> like it's terrifying. Kingdom, they are, they run fast and they are formidable but not World War Z fast. <laughs> yeah, that was insane. Yeah. They would climb walls and stuff. That was, yeah. yeah. I'm out. I'm not watching zombies <laughs> climb. Yeah. So we've touched upon the writing and I think Kim Hyun has obviously become one of my favorite writers. And I keep saying that she's the master of plot twists. Do you think that female writers bring that extra USP into the character arcs versus male writers? So I've thought a lot about this because... For me, being so new and spending the last year watching probably 80% of the shows we've been watching, all of a sudden they're all from Korea because they're just widely available here in the US and just we've gotten into them. It's easy to say it's just because it's female writers, but some of my favorite US shows, you know, only I think about 20% of the writers room in the US are women. Like, for example, my favorite genre, also about a pandemic show, is 12 Monkeys. I think they only had one woman in the writer's room. They still wrote some of the most compelling, multifaceted, and strong in different ways from scientists to wielding a gun women that I've seen on TV. But I think what's different is, at least as I perceive it, there's so many women writing Korean television. It seems like they don't need to write within a male construct of what television should be. And I, I think we're still there in the US. I think things are improving, but I think there's just not as many women writing. And, there, and if they are, often it's still for a male showrunner and all of those implicit biases can come in. I, as a woman watching TV, I have never felt more seen. From everything, from the way romance is portrayed, to emotional intimacy, to women being portrayed as the hero or the antagonist in Kingdom. It's just so layered in a way that I find much more rare still watching American TV. But uh, I do think uh, Kim Yuni, she has a crime thriller background, and I think which is why she could bring that aspect, and that's why the zombie thing is so thrilling. I feel that I would not categorize in my head as a zombie genre, but rather as a thriller. That because that's how my entire experience throughout those two seasons was. And it's a mystery. It makes sense that she came from writing a criminal procedural because, for example, The Walking Dead, we were never going to find out what the what the origin was. Even Game of Thrones kind of was like, I don't really know what happened with the White Walkers, whatever. But this, there is a driving mystery. What was the source? who started it, and they continue to peel those layers away, even with the latest episode that they released. And so you have this mystery origin story that is a really fascinating mythology that she keeps peeling the layers back. And that is not, some zombie, some zombie movies get into the origin, but but not all of them. And it's very believable. It's a very, this one had a very good reason you know, good explanation. And, and, you know, when you think about it, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. And is it was a yeah. biological weapon, right? So before we close the episode today, the last question I want to ask you all is, did you find any obvious weakness in the show or the movie? When I rewatched it, the two seasons for the sake of this episode, 
I was expecting to find something, but I realized after rewatching it, I honestly didn't have anything that stood out for me as something that I was unhappy about or thought it was weak because I have some issues with the storyline, you know, how certain character arcs ended up, but that's more of a personal preference. Like I would have preferred if this person was alive and not dead, that kind of thing. Kingdom actually addressed a lot of the issues that most of their Korean movies and shows get stuck in. For example, the length of the episode itself. As good as some of the shows are, it's hard for me to watch 90 minutes. In this case, they keep it tight, 40, 45 minutes, 50 at the most. And also the length of the episodes in the season. Six episodes, 45, 50 minutes. And what that does is keeps everything tight. It focuses on the main story and even the two or three subplots all are connected to the main plot. But the way Kingdom is, it, it just keeps moving, you know, from the first episode of season one to the, the last episode, just heading at a frenetic pace. And I, I feel like Kingdom did it perfectly in terms of just the structure of the show, the cast, the writing, the dialogues. But more importantly, the length of the episodes and the number of the episodes in the show. So honestly, I I couldn't find any fault with it. I don't know if you guys did. No, I mean, there's certainly things I wish I had more of. I'd love to have more scenes of characters talking to one another to get into their heads a little bit more. For example, we have a, for spoilers, we have a seven-year time jump. So... What happened? What were people doing? I, I just went down like a, I finished that season. I went down a rabbit hole. I'm like, did anybody write like fanfic? Like what what happened for those seven years? <laughs> and who's still with one another? And how do they feel about that? So no, that's not, that's, if anything, that's a compliment. I just want to spend more time with the characters. For me, uh, I loved the first season a lot because it was a right amount of win and lose. But second one I felt was a bit more desolate and more sad and... Uh, that decision that crown prince makes to give up i actually don't like it i found it heartbreaking actually because again it's a preference but i have a sense of you know rightfulness and justice and he and he was the just hair for whatever you say he was the just hair so i felt season two made me sad a lot but overall it would it was still a thrilling watch to, even to the last moment. True, but the way I saw it was that his growth was so immense as a character. I think if this had happened somewhere in the midst of season one, where he always wanted to be the king, he would have taken his chance. But now, after all that he's gone through, his sense of protecting his subjects, his best friend's legacy, trying to do the right thing for everybody, or he where he thought that he would be more useful uh, to help his subjects, I think his character growth was immense. So I agree with you. My preference would have been for him to be the king, but I also loved uh, the growth he showed in taking that decision. I wanted them to find a different way to save the child. Does it make sense? At least in drama, I hope that they put things right in the right place. At least in the dramas, I can hope that. <laughs> it is wrenching. It is not what you want. That moment that you were talking about, Benny, where he walks in and he hands, he's the prince and he's back and you're like, fist pumping, right? You're like, you're back and you're saving everyone. But that moment where he makes that choice, it's not It's not just, it, of course, it's about his friend's son. It's where the personal and the political and the common good all come together that is truly masterful writing. Because he absolutely lays out, you have all of the allies of the Cho clan. 
you have an heir, the country will be plunged into civil war. What he wants, his choices are either to continue plunging his country into political chaos or murdering a child. If as a good leader, as a just leader, how is making either of those choices the right one? And it's at great personal cost. It is like such a selfless decision. Now, one of the things that I find so interesting about what she laid out to explore is that final image of the king and what they assume is the case with what they're facing in terms of their pandemic. But and whether that will ultimately be the best decision for the country will we'll remain to be seen, right? As to whether they're right. But I just thought that that was such everything, the personal and the political all coming together. It was just really, and, and I was surprised, even though when you go back and watch it, you shouldn't be. And those are the best twists. But it fits so perfectly with the character arc, because if he had gone ahead and done it, I would have felt like, but you wouldn't have done that. I mean, that's a great contrast with Game of Thrones with uh, Daenerys. When she does what she does, that's why a lot of fans ended up being very unhappy and dissatisfied because it didn't fit with what she had been built up over the previous seasons. Right. And in this case, Kingdom essentially had established the prince's character and the sacrifices and the lengths that he would go for his people. And so when he does make that decision... It fits in. And the explanation he gives, because everyone else except Beiruna want him to do it. <laughs> and because it makes perfect political sense. Doing it wouldn't have been acceptable in any case. Uh, that would have been heartbreaking for the audiences worldwide. But yeah. there could be, I mean, the writing could have made anything possible. Like he was growing up unknown someplace and he was saved. And the story was said that he was killed by zombies. Anything could have passed because it was a pandemic. I was just looking for a midway path, which which made me happy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm not saying I was happy about it. I was crying watching that scene. But I think there's a theme, even if the show is, I find, more hopeful than other shows in the genre. The writer is putting forth the idea that sometimes doing the right thing comes at a great cost. And with that, we are at the end of our discussion on Kingdom, Train to Busan, and how the Koreans have made zombie shows and movies, which are highly intense, gripping with powerful narration and strong character arcs, which have captured the minds of viewers worldwide. If you haven't yet watched them, we hope you will after listening to this episode. We once again thank Tina and Benny for taking the time out to share their insights on our episode today. If you enjoyed this episode, do write to us. Our email, Twitter, Instagram handles are all in the episode notes. Or simply leave us a voice message. We will be back with another episode of Crash Landed on K-Dramas. Until then, anyo!